Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here as always to talk about stuff, now weekly, several weeks in a row. Yeah, we have earned, we, er, we have re-earned our title Absolutely. for a, a temporary time. Yes, and so far I, I don't see any end in sight, but you never know what could happen. I, you could trip and break your neck. You could, I think it's far more likely that you, <laughs> out of the two of us, you'd be the one to randomly trip and break your neck. I'm saying it's like a random act of fate. For me, it would just be a normal like. Yeah, that's that would like I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. Honestly, yes, absolutely. There, there is a podcast. If you go back far enough, that starts with me sitting down and falling. That's true. I yeah, I forgot about that one. <laughs> well, anyway, we're going to talk about a bunch of things on the show today. Uh, just sort of certain random things. Sean has played Persona Four dancing all night. I have. I have been dancing, and it has been all night. I'm, I'm very tired. Awesome. I've seen a couple of really good movies, and uh, we're going to talk about Doctor Who, the latest episode of series nine, uh, Below the Lake. Yes. I, had to, I get the title of this and next week's mixed up. So yeah, anyway, yeah. Below the Lake. Uh, good episode, we'll talk about that. Um, to start, a couple of sort of housekeeping things. I am once again recording the podcast on an all-new computer. Yeah. So, it feels like it was just yesterday that that was happening, Jonathan. Been, it's been a rapid, I don't know. Okay, so I had a PC for the last like year and a half. And basically over the last week it committed seppuku and ripped out its innards. And... This had been a long time coming, but I didn't necessarily read all the signs right. Right. So you guys have not really heard it on the podcast because we've been masking it decently, but we've actually had a lot of problems recording this thing. Yeah, like the past couple of weeks have been kind of rough. Yeah, so what has happened is we record this in Audacity, which is a very reliable program. I mean, if you've ever used it, you know. It's pretty rock solid. I very rarely have big problems with it unless we've done something stupid like recorded for three hours without saving, and then that's on us. But um, then we learn our lessons and move on. Yes, we do. So, but generally, it's a pretty reliable program. And what it had been doing is like, um, if you don't know what Audacity does, basically, as we're recording, we're both very used to this sight of a blue line with the waveform just going across, and it loads across the screen, it yeah. goes horizontally, and it generally just keeps up its regular pace. And then, what would happen over the last couple of weeks is it would keep freezing, yeah, or it would stop, and then we'd have to stop, and then we'd see, well, where did it actually stop recording us? And that was a whole hassle, and we'd be doing that. Well, that was a sign of hard drive failure, ah. <laughs> because uh, a couple days before my computer, I had to kind of toss it in the bin. Not it's sitting on my underwear, I think, upstairs, but the theoretical, there, the metaphorical yes. bin, it just all read and write functions, which is most of what your computer yeah. does. <laughs> Very necessary yes. to using a computer. Uh, stopped working, at first, they just stopped working well, and then they kind of stopped working altogether. So... I first noticed it with my office apps, which is what I probably use most besides my internet browser. And so I would be trying to write something and Word would crash or it couldn't save or something. Or I would then I would get on Firefox or whatever browser I'm using and, and try that and couldn't get anywhere on that because just the basic process of writing the information temporarily so yeah. to show it wasn't working and everything would crash. The computer kept freezing and not even getting to a state like it's on the blue screen or something. It just, I could move my mouse, but nothing would happen. I'd leave it for 30 minutes, still nothing happening. I'd have to do a lot of hard resets. And pretty much at a certain point figured out this is what was going on. Um, and so, obviously, my first step whenever anything like that happens is to try to save data. Yeah. And I couldn't even, it could not get data off of that. I tried going into safe mode. I tried all these different things. Could not get data off that computer. So, and that was actually, the that is the hardest I've ever had a computer fail on me. Yeah, because, that's, that's really severe. I've never had a computer yeah. go that far. Um, which was surprising because, and it, it tested my own backup stuff because I'm pretty good about backups. So luckily, I had most of what I needed. Um, 
I just I kind of had an I was in an in between state where most of my cloud backups I didn't have a local backup of so I did all my cloud backup stuff was tested mm-hmm. and I had to re-download that when I got this new computer but um, yeah it, man it it failed hard and that's why I say it committed seppuku because like just its innards yeah. it like tossed out yeah and so the only real things I lost that I'm at all disappointed about are related to the podcast. Um, you know, obviously the, epi- the versions of the episodes I put out are compressed MP3s, which are the ultimate archival format, and that's fine. But I do have, when I record the podcast, it creates an uncompressed, obviously, just record of the data and everything. Yeah. And I lost a couple weeks of those. So not the worst thing in the world because the episodes are out and I know the files are fine. I haven't had any complaints about them. Yeah. But that always just freaks me out a little bit. Like, what if I ever need episode, like, 23 uh, again or something? Yeah, what if, like, aliens come to our planet and are like, <laughs> we missed episode 23 of the Weekly Stuff podcast. We are huge fans. If you do not give it to us in like a very high quality format, we'll just destroy the entire planet. If that completely plausible and believable scenario does come about, Jonathan, is the destruction of mankind is basically your fault. Well, I have episode twenty three. It's like episode oh, one fourteen okay. through yeah. one seventeen. I just saying. said I don't yeah. know why I said twenty three. Just no, it's okay. Top of my head, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so that's what happened, and. It's kind of funny, though, because I've been looking and getting a new computer for a couple months anyway, because the PC I had, it turned out to be not exactly what I wanted. It was a little too bulky and big for me, which as a writer, I don't really know why I went with that. I would like I usually like computers that are smaller, have long battery life I can take, because yeah. I like to write in different places and stuff. Um, so I've been looking and just seeing what could I trade in for. I even tried out an, uh, another Asus that was I think called the ZenBook for a couple days. Didn't like it, so I sent it back. But... Um, Anyway, and, and it had all these problems. Like, it had this... You probably saw it when we were recording podcasts. This string of dead pixels that annoyed the shit yeah. out of me. And I tried to fix it. And they would not do a warranty call on it, even though I was eligible for it and all this shit. And so that was kind of all a nightmare. So i um, been looking at a lot of computers for a while. And I realized that while I don't ne- didn't necessarily want to go back to Mac software, the only people who made computers the way I kind of like it, which is... Thin, but sturdy, with a nice keyboard and really good trackpad and a nice screen and all that that isn't in... That actually has a better aspect ratio. I don't know why laptops with small screens do 16 by 9. That's stupid. So I like that Macs still do, like, it's in between 4 by 3 and 16 by 9. Um, so just all those different things I like. It's like, well, it'll be a little more money, but Mac does it. And it turned out when this happened, I was totally in between paychecks and things. Right. And Apple was the only company that had good financing. So there you go. Um, financing sometimes determines everything yeah. with a laptop. So, got a MacBook Pro, Retina 13-inch. I actually used to have one of these. Liked it at the time. Like it even more now. Um, I've been away for a while. The Finder icon is scary now. He smiles. Oh, that smile yeah. is too broad. Everything else they've made better. The Finder thing just freaks me out a little bit. Hmm. Yeah. But they actually finally updated the color wheel that spins. No, did they? They did, and it's really cool. I kind of like when things freeze now, because the color (laughs) wheel is so nice. Well, great, yeah. Oh, and Sean, can I I see see if I can show you the best feature in OSX El Capitan? Sure, go ahead. I can get the the (laughs) cursor to be really big if I swiggle the the trackpad enough. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And do be clear, for those who don't know, when Jonathan says that it gets really big, it's, like, comically large. Do it again. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's about a hundred times its normal size. It's kind of ridiculous. What is that feature for? Do you know? It's in case you miss where your cursor is. I think it's probably for bigger Macs or if you're extending across multiple desktops. That, okay, yeah, that would yeah. make sense. Yeah, uh, and you can turn it off. It's you know, okay, yeah. it's not like you're stuck with it. But why would but, you? Like yeah. that's and that seems like your new pastime when like you're watching some YouTube video that's not yeah. entirely enthralling you. You're yes. just making your cursor huge right. and small. And you know they didn't make it so you'll do it on accident. You have to squiggle it for a while. Which is nice, but so anyway, it's just one of those Apple features where it's like you didn't need a whole new operating system for this, but yeah. it's kind of a funny feature. Anyway, so I'm liking it. Um, it's a really good computer. It's all solid state, which is nice. I'm kind of like solid states won't fail the same way a spinning hard drive will. Yeah. So I was nice. I was like, I'm okay going back to solid state for a little while, and sprung for 500 gigs this time, so I won't run out of space. Um, so anyway, that's my new computer. Hopefully, it'll record the podcast more reliably. <laughs> Like, if we can get through tonight and it all goes well, I'm going to be like, okay, we're good for now. Yeah. We, yeah. So hopefully. It was getting scary with Audacity. It, yeah, it was getting to the point where it was just like, it was. It felt like we were just going to lose a whole podcast soon. Yeah. And you never want to do that. That is a soul-crushing experience. Yeah, to be talking for like two and a half hours and then have that all go away. Yeah. And be like, well, do we re-record this podcast or do we just move on with our lives and give up? Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard choice. Well, anyway, speaking of the podcast, I've been doing some housekeeping things with the podcast, so let me show you really quick. I finally, been meaning to do this for a while, I finally built us a Tumblr page. Because the kids are on Tumblr, people like it, and I can make a better archive than my blog. Because right. one of my long-term projects is my website, JonathanLife.com. I am going to redesign it one day, probably when I'm done with college in a couple months. Just don't have the time right now. I mean, it's built on Blogger software, which is pretty old software that they haven't updated in a while. And I think it, it looks good. It's readable and everything. It's clean. But I would like it to look better. And, like, so, Sean, I'm showing you the podcast archive on my site. Yeah. And it looks fine. You can go through it. You can stream each episode and download them. But it's kind of just plain text. Yeah. And it's got some wonky formatting that I can't fix because, again, this is, this is an old site. I, this site is from 2011 at this point, And the way the Internet moves, it's yeah. getting kind of old. So I built a Tumblr page. I'm not done with it yet, so you can go look at it. Uh, it's theweeklystuff.tumblr.com, and it's just going to be an archive of the show, and it'll update every week. But you can go through, and it's got a picture for every episode, the episode, or a description, date it was recorded, and you can just pick an episode and play it. Uh, I think there's a way to download these. I haven't figured it out yet. Um, I'm still kind of exploring with it, but I've got every episode up to number 76, which is the beginning of 2014 so I'll post the rest of these over the next week or so and eventually you know each episode will post here each week I know a lot of people use Tumblr and it's an easy way to get that updated so people who aren't on Twitter and Facebook hopefully we can reach them too yeah um, I'm just trying to think of new distribution platforms because the podcast currently comes out on iTunes which of course distributes to all sorts of podcasting apps yeah and then I think it's on Stitcher and a couple of other places I've looked at getting it on SoundCloud but you have to pay a lot for a SoundCloud subscription so not going to do that yet but um, the Tumblr page, if you just want to like go through the podcast archive, it's much nicer than the one on my site right now. So at some point, this is probably going to replace what's on my site. But it's scrollable. You can go through it. It's completely searchable, which I like. There's a search bar. Uh, and all of them are tagged, so you can search by tags, too. So if you like the podcast and you want to go, you know... If you're just suddenly now playing Persona 4 and you want to find when we reviewed Persona 4, it's much easier to find that now. Yeah, or if you just want to, like, get all our Doctor Who episodes, you can just yeah, you can get just... all the Doctor Who episodes. Right, because there's the Doctor Who hashtag and then it archives all of them. 
Um, that's most of our podcast, yeah, frankly. But, but <laughs> you know, it, it, if you're someone who's only interested in, like, the Doctor Who side of it, if you want to, like, cut out the bullshit and be like, what the fuck, they're talking about some fucking superhero movie this week? I don't give a shit. Yeah. I want some real shit. I want some Doctor Who. You can do that. Yeah. Listen to the podcast the right way. Yes. Um, I wound up, I think I had to stop myself where I got into a rhythm where I was tagging every episode with Doctor Who, and at a certain point I realized, oh... These last two episodes we didn't talk about Doctor Who. Let me... Because <laughs> yeah. I just got into the room with like, hashtag Doctor Who, and yeah. So, it's... The Tumblr page is really nice. It's going to be... When it's all there, it's going to be a much more searchable uh, archive, and I like that. Um, nice. If you have any other suggestions of things you'd like to see us do with the podcast, I can do that. Um, Tumblr is nice and easy to work with. Um, I might do more with that at some point, because I know it's a popular social media platform, and it's the first... I feel like that I have no idea... At a certain point, I had no idea what it was, so I wanted to learn... Yeah, like I've used, like I don't use Tumblr to like blog my own stuff, but I like yeah. kind of follow people on Tumblr. The same thing I do with Twitter that I don't really yeah. tweet myself. And yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good website for like blogging. Like it, yeah. it's definitely effective for that. So yeah, cool. Right. We're on there now. Yes. So uh, Sean, yes, you played me. Persona Four Dancing all night. I have played so much Persona Four Dancing all night. Yes. Yeah, I have not played it just yet because it came out my birthday's in a couple of days. And so my parents asked me what I wanted for my birthday, and I was like, well, there's this special edition of Persona 4, Dancing All Night, so they didn't know what that was. But anyway, um, so I'm getting it for my birthday, so I haven't played it just yet, but you've yeah. played it. Yes. Do you dance all night? You dance for multiple nights, yes. Do you? So basically, I guess, where I am right now in the game is I've... I've it has like a play clock, and I think the last time I looked at it, I was like 15 hours or something, because I got it when it came out, which was like a week ago now. So I've beaten the story mode, and I really like the story mode. It's something where if you've played Persona 4 Arena Ultimax, it is basically the same format as that one. Where Persona 4 Arena had like the visual novel story mode, but that one was weird because it had like different character specific stories that like contradicted each other. So it was like you would have like a Chie story, and the Chie story was different than the Yosuke story, and they would like if you could not put them together into the same continuity. And so that was really weird. This is like it is a straightforward story, visual novel style, where there are like a couple of you open up multiple parallel storylines at some point that you can follow, and you just kinda like go through the story and Every once in a while you have to dance to convey your feelings to the shadows in the on the midnight stage so that they know that so that they know that like these bonds that they have been lured into the midnight stage with are fake bonds and that they need to return to the real world. This and, is the greatest premise for a video yeah, game ever. So basically, yeah, just to explain it simply, if that is in any way possible, Persona 4 Dancing All Night is takes place after Persona 4, like it is, as far as I can tell, it's completely canonical. It takes place at the further, it's like, it is the most recent story told with the Persona 4 characters. It like very blatantly takes place after the epilogue of Persona 4 The Golden, which was previously the furthest along in the continuity had gone. So this place takes place after all of that. Risei, the pop idol character from Persona 4, is finally making her comeback, which has been alluded to through all the different spinoffs. And so she has. She's going to this festival called the Love Meets Bombs Festival, which that the title for that festival works way better Japanese. But so she decides she's going to make her comeback at this festival, and she wants all of her friends on the investigation team to be her backup dancers. So you have all, so you Narukami and all your buddies have been practicing as backup dancers for the past month or so. When all of a sudden, all this this crazy rumor starts going around about this thing called the Midnight Stage. That if you look at a video on the website for the festival at midnight, you see a dead idol singing, and your like soul gets taken. 
And so then all this crazy shit with shadows happen and you have to basically dance to defeat the shadows and find out what is going on with this midnight stage and who is the true culprit behind all of this. And I'm guessing the story is way better than it has any right to be. Yes, it is. It is. It's not amazing. Like I would, don't go into this expecting a story on par with like Persona Four. But if you've played the the arena games, which have like and have like a similar visual novel storyline, I'd say the story is about on par with those. One thing that's nice about this is that since it's focused entirely on the Persona Four cast, the Persona Three characters are not involved in any way. It's able to sort of get around some of the problems that the arena games had with writing the Persona 4 characters and that the Persona 4 characters have finished their character arc from Persona 4 so there was not a lot left to do with them. And so they sort of fell back on some tropes with the characters, particularly Chie, I think, was the one who got hit the hardest, where they kind of, they actually, there are a couple of really funny lines where they kind of address this, where Chie is just like, so what, am I just a meat girl now? Is that, like, just what I am? Because in the arena games, when they use Chie, a lot of times it just fell back on that, like, the kung fu and she loves meat part of her characters because they're funny and easy to write and she's not the focus of the story. But in this, I think all the Persona 4 characters get their due. They don't necessarily have, like, big dramatic character arcs, but they feel more like they are the characters that you know and love from Persona 4 and that they are at that point that they were at the end of Persona 4 and are moving steadily forward. They don't have, like, big dramatic character arcs, but they, their characters do change over the course of the story and that's nice. And then you have you have new characters in Kanami Mashita, which all the the in the dub they call her Konami, and so it sounds like they say Konami is like how they pronounce her name. So there's like a lot of with all the weird shit that's been going on with Konami recently, there's a lot of weird jokes you can make in your head when they're talking about her. And she's basically another pop idol, and she's kind of the new character that the story really does revolve around, and she has the most sort of interesting story stuff, which has been the case for all these spin-offs. That the new characters are the ones that like the story is really about right. because they get the really dramatic character arcs. And if you are someone who really loves Nanako, this is like the most amazing game ever. Because Nanako is like kind of too adorable. Like because she she dances, like she is one of the characters that she has several of her own songs that she dances to, including a Juness theme now fully realized with like oh, full lyrics fuck, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it is it is insane. Like, it feels like eventually when, like, society collapses, it will be because, like, the government just is beaming Nanako dancing into your head and just, like, sedating the entire populace with how cute she is. Like, it is... It, I'm not even joking. Like, it is fucking extreme. And it is scary. And so, yeah, if you are... I'll say this. If you are someone who is a big fan of Persona 4 and has any interest in rhythm games and you have a Vita, I think this game is absolutely for you because the, the, I haven't really talked about the rhythm game part of it yet, but it's basically the same as those Hatsune Miku Project Diva games that I played one of those and liked it. If you've played one of those games and liked it, like the gameplay is almost the exact same and I think the I really like that kind of rhythm game. It's really fun. It gets really hard when you ratchet up the difficulty, but you don't have to. And if you're only interested in the story, you can basically make it so that you can't fail the rhythm parts in the story mode. And so, yeah, it's it's a really fully featured game. The story mode is like 10 hours long for me. It's how long it took me to play through it. It's and about then, 78 hours long? No, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's the length that it needs to be. I actually right. think I like that it's very focused and sort of gets straight to the point. But then you also, on top of the story mode, you know, you have the free dance mode where you can play through all the songs and just like really challenge yourself and put on all these modifiers to make it harder. And that's like, that would be the game normally. Like, 
that's what those Hatsune Miku games are, is just like the free dance mode where you just go through the list of songs and try to get good at them the way that you wouldn't like a Guitar Hero or something. But yeah, having the story mode there and that free dance mode, like this game is really fully featured and it feels like it can appeal to a... Within the niche niche that it occupies, it appeals to the broadest audience it possibly can. So That's awesome. Yeah, I if you're someone who like is listening to this and it sounds like something you might be interested in, like it get it because it is really good and the the music is really phenomenal obviously there's there's only two new songs in the game which are the opening and ending themes but there's a bunch of different remixes of the songs from Persona 4 and there's only the there's only one remix that I don't like there's the remix for Your Affection that I personally don't like that much but a lot of the other ones I think are really great in fact there's two of them the remix for Best Friends and the remix for Shadow World I like better than the original versions of the song I'm so, so excited yeah god it's really fucking good I, I look so forward next week to win this game coming out, and I will log online and drop out of school <laughs> so I can play Persona 4 Dancing all night, yeah. all day long. I really yeah. look forward to it. Yeah, and I've basically cleared all the songs on hard mode, and there's another difficulty that I didn't unlock that I haven't touched yet. Oh, wow. And if you're someone that, like, you know how hard these rhythm games can be and how, like, intense that is, where last night I played probably for, like, an hour straight of just going through those songs because I got into, like, the zone, and when I was out of it, like, my left thumb had cramped up, and I couldn't read for, like, two minutes afterwards because my vision was fuzzy because it was, like, I was so intensely focused that it's, like, my body had to, like, shut down and recuperate. Because it's, like, it's, it gets that level of hard of just, like, you have to fucking really focus and really be in the moment if you're playing on the harder difficulties, which yes. I really enjoy. And it sounds like it would be a great portable game, too. Yes. Because yeah. you could just take it in between classes or when the teacher's talking about something boring and just play yeah, it. Yeah, because most of the songs are like two and a half minutes to three minutes long. Right. So, yeah, you can play through a couple of songs in yeah. a short period of time and have fun the, with it. Conceivably, the teacher's back could be turned for a whole song and you could get through it. If if you choose to play it in the class, which I don't advocate, like, yes, you should I theoretically... Try, should I try this? In one of my classes and see, like, my experiment, how how many songs I mean, can I get don't to? blame me when you suddenly start, like, singing out the rap to pursuing my true self <laughs> in the middle of class. Like, yeah, you could try, but when all of a sudden, like, the teacher is explaining, like, late capitalism to you, and you just say, come on, let go of the remote, don't you know you're letting all the junk flood in. Like, don't blame me. It's your own choice. Is a reminder that if you haven't listened to last week's episode where we talked about our favorite Persona songs and Sean read them all basically as beat poetry, yeah. that's maybe my favorite episode we've ever done. And I spent the weekend looking through on our Tumblr page, you know, my other favorite episodes like our Hobbit audio commentary. Oh, right. I and, uh, yeah, so that's, I always love it when we get a new episode where I'm like, this goes in my list of favorites. Anyway. So we'll we'll definitely talk about this game more probably next week. When yeah, we I'm I'm, I'm interested for you to play and we can talk yeah. about like the story and stuff more. Yeah, in so definitely interesting stuff that's in there. Definitely. So consider this our spoiler free review. Yeah, and we'll yeah. do a spoiler two, review. Two thumbs up for sure. If you're again, it's a super niche game, but like <laughs> if you're in the niche, it like fulfills it perfectly. Like yeah, it's awesome. really good. And you know, I think there's just there's something to be said for filling a niche well because. So often, niches are filled in a way that's pandering and bad. Yeah. Which this game very easily could have been. Yes. Like, if it hadn't been for the very high quality of the Persona 4 Arena games, I think I would not have, like, actually gotten this game because I would have suspected it would be bad. But, like, I think this is actually, out of those spin-off games, this one is my favorite so far. Awesome. I think it has, like, the production value and everything about it is so high. Well, Persona 4 Arena doesn't have dancing Nanako. It's true. Yeah, like, yeah. God, dude. Fuck. And Nanako gets, like, all the best songs in the game, too. Like, that's the other part. Where, like, her remix of Shadow World and her remix of Heartbeat Heartbreak are, like, two of the best songs in the game. 
So great. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about some other good stuff. Uh, I saw two movies this weekend. Oh, wow. You're watching movies again. I know. I have not... I hadn't been going to the movies all that much, in part because there were things I wanted to see, but they were like kind of limited release things where I was like... I'd like to see this in a theater, but I'll probably wait until I can rent it or something. Right. Um, not from a lack of enthusiasm, more a lack of time. But two big release movies this weekend I wanted to see. So the first was The Martian, a uh, new no, film right, by yeah. Ridley Scott with starring Matt Damon, Jessica Chastain, a bunch of other people, based on the book by Andy Weir, which I talked about on the podcast a couple weeks ago, I think, and I just loved that book. It is hard science fiction at its best, and the movie is really, really good. I don't think I love it as much as a lot of other people do, but I would assume most people haven't read the book who are going to see the movie. Probably, yeah. And it's not like I don't want to get into the, you know... Though the book is better, you don't want to be that guy? No, because that annoys me. Yeah. I did like the book better, but that's a def- I think that's always a separate discussion, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's a, they're two very different things. Yes, and, and that's what I'll say. Like, here's the thing. My favorite things in the book were all the little details of, like, okay, the main character, Mark Watney, he's got to figure out how to create water within his habitat... By burning hydrogen out of the air And he walks you through every step And I love that Obviously in a movie They cannot give you all the details Yeah That would be a bad movie Because it would be Matt Damon Staring at the screen for like 11 hours Just giving you a complex science lecture Yes That would It makes a good book Would not make a good movie So I think it speaks really well for the movie That the movie is much more The kind of broad level Overarching things from the book That I liked But weren't my favorite part And I still really enjoyed the movie so I think it gets across the, the idea that this is hard science fiction. It's not about cutting corners and those sorts of things. And it really gets that across, even if it's not going into detail on everything, which is fine. I think there was only one point where he has to make a long journey, and I thought they could have it, like expanded on that in the movie just a little more because it feels like it's too easy for him in the film version. Right. And that's the only part where it impacted things. But otherwise, I mean, it is really well acted. Matt Damon is not exactly the character I imagined in the book, but he's so good and... and he gets to have a lot of fun, even if it's in a setting where he's mostly on his own, and that's good. I, you know, I always like it when Matt Damon gets to be funny because yeah. I think it's actually an underused skill set of his. Yeah, that's definitely true. If you've ever seen the uh, what's it called, The Informant by Steven Soderbergh, right? Yes, yeah. Fuck, he's funny in that. He's because so, he's like he he gained all this weight for it, mm-hmm. and he's crazy. So anyway, and this movie is very funny, but it's got lots of good people. Jeff Daniels plays the head of NASA, and I realized. Uh, Aaron Sorkin ruined Jeff Daniels for me so hard on the newsroom, the HBO show where he had Jeff Daniels play the world's most mansplaining mansplainer who ever mansplained to women. And I was like, okay, no, Jeff Daniels is playing a nice character in The Martian, right, and it took yeah. me about 30 minutes to realize, no, I'm supposed to like this guy. He's a little stern, but, you know, he's, got, he's the head of NASA. That's a big job. Yeah. How could you not be stern? So anyway, I liked him. I liked everyone who was in the movie. And uh, it moves along at a good pace. It's a lot of... It's, it's fun while still having a certain amount of, like I said, you know, the scientific depth and stuff. And I think the number one thing the movie has going for it is what the book obviously couldn't do, which is the visual side of things. And I've never seen a movie about Mars or, frankly, any other, you know, planet someone's visiting that was this immersive. And, like, that looks like a place you could go and stand on and be in. And it was just so immersive. The special effects are so seamless. The production design is amazing. Ridley Scott, just he's a great director in the sense that he directs movies well. Yeah. And he makes great pieces of visuals. Like, Prometheus is a really bad movie. Yeah. It's kind of a fantastically directed movie. Yes, yeah. Like, visually, it's phenomenal. Like, yeah. the problem is that, like, the script he got was complete fucking shit. Yeah, and this is every bit as visually masterful as Prometheus, but it's in the service of a really good story with, like, good characters who do things that make sense. Yeah. And those sorts of things. And you, you know what? It makes a difference. 
Yeah. We were talking about this the other day. Ridley yeah. Scott is a weird-ass director. Yeah, because precisely for what we're saying, that it feels like sometimes... It almost feels like he doesn't even read the script that he's given. He's just like... He hears, like, maybe the premise or something is like, well, that sounds like I could make some really, like, just, like, interesting visual imagery out of this. And he just kind of does that. And then people happen to be saying things in the shots he's composing. And he's not necessarily paying attention to it all the time. Absolutely. Like, I get the sense that he's a guy who just loves making movies. And I don't think he's that discriminating about what movies he's making. Yeah. Because I think if you look like... Because I think The Martian is easily his best movie since Kingdom of Heaven, which is ten years ago now. And even then, you have to qualify that with Kingdom of Heaven, the director's cut. Yeah. Because the theatrical version was a botched kind of... It's not bad, but it was messy, definitely. And, you know, I think in those ten years, he's made some movies like uh, Body of Lies and Prometheus and some of those. And probably that Exodus movie that I never wanted to see and flopped. That oh, fuck, were, right? Yeah. That I'm sure, either I saw them or I didn't, most of those I just mentioned I've seen, that I'm sure were all, you know, really well directed, visually masterful, all of those things, um, but often just like, there wasn't much to them, there wasn't mm. much substance, um, but I don't think he, like, pro- I don't think he put more effort into The Martian than he did into Prometheus, like, that's what I would imagine, like, he probably just, this is one where he got his hands on a really good script, uh, written the, the Drew Goddard was the guy who adapted it, and uh, you know he made Cabin in the Woods and worked on Buffy and Angel and things like that. Lost, so he's a really good writer, and um, yeah. So just in the future, someone should like get Ridley Scott in some kind of rehab where he pays more attention to the because he could always get his hands on a good script. He's yeah, Ridley exactly. fucking Scott. Yeah, he can direct whatever the hell he wants. But yeah, so it's really nice to have him make another good movie. I hope we don't have to like slag through another ten years of this shit. Well, just but, wait till we get Prometheus 3, like Paradise Lost or whatever the fuck they're calling it now. Well, have you heard? Yeah, so you heard about that? Let's talk about that really quick. Okay, so, yeah. they, they're making Prometheus 2, but they're calling it Alien Paradise Lost. That's right, yes. What the fuck is going on? I don't know. Ridley Scott also gave an interview, because obviously the whole Martian press junket thing, where he said he wants the Prometheus series, which will no longer be called Prometheus, to eventually like meet up with Alien... But it won't do that until the fourth movie. Yes, that's right, yeah. So he wants to make four of these. What the fuck? It's, it would, it, like, I still, I think we talked about this maybe on the last podcast, I still don't know what Prometheus 2 is going to be. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't, we fucking watched that movie twice. We did. Because we're stupid when the, the extended version came out. And we are really stupid. And, like, I don't know what the sequel to that movie looks like. I mean, obviously you have the two surviving characters, well, the character in the head at the end of the movie, <laughs> to, that go off into space to go do something. But, like, I can't imagine the continuing adventures of those two characters in the future and, like, what they encounter and what plot you would write about that. Like, I have no fucking clue what a sequel to that movie will be, other than, obviously, now it's just going to have a bunch of, like, Jesus and, like, religious symbolisms that they're calling Paradise Lost. Yeah. Here's my pitch. So, okay. Michael Fassbender's head, it's got a, it needs to have a new body, right? Presumably, yes. All right. The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, is a super okay. popular actor. Yes, he's, he's a very good actor for like action movies. He is. So I say they do something where Michael Fassbender's robot head gets on The Rock's body, because that would be a great sight gag. Okay, yeah. And The Rock is an android, too. And then The Rock's head... Is like off making quips and shit, and he's got to get his body back, and that's okay. like the arc yeah. of the movie. That's it came around when I realized that Dwayne Johnson's head is still in the movie. Like yes. it's yeah, like he is now his own character. Yeah, yes, he's got to. It's a revenge story. He's got to get his body back from this asshole android and his weird friend who 
gave herself a C-section with an alien baby. What about Doctor Who companion Liz Shaw? What is she doing? <laughs> That's the woman who got uh, all this. Uh, what what can she be doing? Um, I don't know. She gets killed in the first five minutes. <laughs> Short. She yeah. she trips getting out of the spaceship and breaks her neck. No, she trips and like opens up the gaping abdomen wound she had yes. like remaining and like bleeds out because it's like like you can't be running around with stitches on this massive gaping wound that covers your entire abdomen. You would be dead right now. Yeah, it's like the reality of the original movie finally catches up to these characters. I'm just my instinct is to make it super ridiculous. Like maybe the rock's head can be put on like Peter Dinklage's body, and then I don't know what Peter Dinklage's head is doing. But we can figure that out. I mean, he's off, like, helping people fight the darkness. Yes. Like, he's reviving Guardians with the light of the Traveler. <laughs> there are real possibilities here. Yeah. As or, long as you don't take it seriously. Yes. Or, as our conversation is indicating, there are no possibilities here. You'd be better off making The Martian 2. I could more easily imagine a, like, 90s-style sequel where someone else gets stranded <laughs> on Mars. Yeah. And now Matt Damon has to help that guy get off. Yeah. <laughs> That would actually probably be a better sequel than Prometheus Except 2. Except for, like, and they want, like, the original script has the Matt Damon character do it, but, like, they couldn't actually get Matt Damon to come back for the movie. <laughs> so it's like The Fly 2, where they just have, like, unused footage from the original Martian and cut it together to make it look like it's like a radio transmission where he's telling them what to do. That would be so great. And, of course, the character then has to be Matt Damon's character's son. Like, that's the other part of it. Okay. Sounds good. I'm all in on this. Yeah. That's great. Cause like, and they could even do a weird retcon where like he clearly does not have like a wife and kid in the Martian. He's not a Family Guy, but they could retcon it where like he did have a kid that whole yeah. time. He just didn't mention it while he was on Mars. <laughs> it just never came up. Yeah, you never asked me. Yeah. Oh man. All right. So I liked the Martian. It's good. You should all go see it. It's cool. definitely a big crowd pleaser. And it's fun. It was even one where I saw it in two D, and I kind of wished I'd seen it in three D hmm. because I did see Prometheus in three D back in the day. And I could tell the same ways Ridley Scott was using it well. So, anyway, so however you want to see it, it'd be good. Uh, I also saw today in IMAX, this movie is in limited release just in IMAX theaters right now, and it's The Walk, the film by Robert Zemeckis, which is the same story as the 2007 documentary Man on Wire, which won an Academy Award for Best Documentary. It's the story of Philippe Petit, a Frenchman and a sort of acrobat who uh, in the 1970s decided to um, hang a tight wire across the two towers of the World Trade Center when they had just finished being built and walk across it. And um, that is one of my... Man on Wire is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's one of my favorite films of the 2000s. It is probably my favorite documentary film. I love that movie to death. And I just love the Philippe Petit story. I think it's... Mm -hmm. He is such a fascinating character. That story is so fucking cool that someone would do that and then spend... He had to spend years figuring out basically the heist necessary to get into the World Trade yeah. Center and do this incredibly complex thing and then pull it off. And, you know, that documentary is just such a beautiful movie. And I was a little hesitant about this film. It's, you know, not... I don't know if you would call it a remake because it's this is a dramatization, not a documentary. Yeah. Um, you know, I like Robert Zemeckis' films generally. He went through that whole period in the wilderness where he was making weird CGI films like Beowulf. Right. And the Polar Express. Yes, Polar Express was what I was thinking of. Thank God he didn't do that for the walk. That would be <laughs> so bad. But anyway, um, 
So he's gone back to making live-action movies, and I liked his last one, Flight, with uh, Denzel Washington, but I still wasn't sure, because I just didn't know if you needed to expand on Man on Wire. But uh, this got rave reviews out of the New York Film Festival, and just people saying, like, the actual sequence when he's on the wire, they did so well, it was making people throw up in the theater and giving people vertigo and all these things. I was like, well, I gotta see that. So I went to see it today in IMAX, and that is a great movie. I fucking loved this movie. Did you throw up in your seat? No, I, I cried a little. And I'm not ashamed to admit it, but I think they did it did so... Did you cry because you had vertigo, or did you cry because it was a sad story? I cried because it was beautiful. Okay. It was just, he gets out on that wire, and, you know, takes... The way they build it up is beautiful, where right before he takes the first step, he imagines himself kind of shutting everything else out. You know, the, the city below, and the clouds above, and kind of the buildings, and he just sees the wire, and he gets on. And when he does it, because they build it up so well in the movie, and then he does it... And it's all so real. Like, that's something the documentary obviously could not show you, The Walk, because there was no film of it. There's some photos. But other than that, they, they can't show you what it was like to be on there. It's just yeah. his word and all that. And I think that's a great sequence in the documentary, because that is a documentary that is so much about reflection and memory and experience. And this movie is about the actual experience of it. And just to see it, because I think this is such a cool thing he did, I think it is... I mean, it's performance art, and it's a powerful piece of art. And I, I, it was totally involuntary. I just found myself, I'm like, oh, I'm not just tearing up at this. I'm, I've actually got tears streaming down my face. Because it is such a beautiful way they do it. Um, you definitely kind of feel the vertigo effect at it. Uh, not that they do like the Hitchcock thing or anything. Right, yeah. But you feel that. You feel the height. They do such a good job at, at immersing you. Like, I thought in the trailers the effects looked really wonky. And clearly that was just early effects footage. Because the final movie looks so seamless. I really don't know how they did it. Uh, you know, I know they filmed the actual Joseph Gordon-Levitt on a wire on a green screen and stuff, but beyond that, like, of course a lot of that is CGI, but it's got to be a mix of CGI and plates and historical footage and stuff, I imagine, but it's really, it's incredible, and Robert Zemeckis being a great visual effects craftsman throughout his career, this is, I think, one of his bigger accomplishments on that level, but it, uh, even, and so that's the sequence, obviously, that most people are going to talk about, that's the title of the movie, The Walk, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think the whole movie's good. I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt is fantastic. He, and I think I've seen some divided reaction on him, and I imagine the people who don't like his performance have not seen Man on Wire. Because if you know what the actual Philippe Petit looks like and sounds like, he is doing it to a T. Hmm. He's got the voice down, he's got the accent down, he's got the mannerisms down, the general sense of enthusiasm. This guy is such a larger-than-life character. He was a magician, he was a clown, he was a street performer... And he was a crazy person. Yes, he decided, Yeah. He decided to, you know, do this wire walk across the Twin Towers. I wouldn't want a subtle performance of that guy. Why would you? I mean, he was the... Yeah, he wasn't a subtle person. You no. can't be a subtle person and walk across the Twin Towers on a wire. Like, yes. that's not... Those two things don't line up. No, they are mutually exclusive. Yeah. I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt is fantastic. And it allows the film around him just to be very kind of light and storybook-esque and all these things without sacrificing depth and detail. Like, it's very accurate to the actual event. It quotes whole passages from Man of Wire in terms of dialogue and even action, but in a way that does not feel like it's just retreading ground. It feels like a good companion piece. Each movie offers a different perspective on this really cool event. And, uh, you know, one thing I would say, too, there were a couple of families in the theater, and that made me really happy because... Not that the documentary is inappropriate or anything, but I just don't think it's probably all that accessible to kids. Right, yeah. And this is totally a story kids could enjoy and probably find really cool. And I think Robert Zemeckis, again, without sacrificing depth, has made one that is 
totally family friendly and I think kids would love if they went to see it. And that's actually something I should say about The Martian, too. Uh, the book has a bunch of language. They tone that down for the movie because it's not, like, completely necessary. So it's a PG-13. But I think it's totally family-appropriate. And that's what I think kids would love, too. Whenever you can get kids to watch something that's all about science instead of princesses fucking or something, you know? It's, I don't... Or just, like, weird CG versions of old 80s cartoons that right. make, like, jokes that kids aren't going to get. Yeah. Um... Yeah, The Martian it seems to be every kid's movie that comes out these days. I don't it, know. it really does. So The Martian and The Walk, I think, are actually both pretty good. They could be good family movies, and I like that. Um, and they're both just very optimistic and fulfilling movies without sacrificing, I think, depth or being naive. And uh, we need more of that in the world right now. Yeah. Um, so I like that. I think this was a really good weekend for movies with those two. One thing I will say about The Walk, though. So I saw this in IMAX 3D. They're all different sorts of IMAX screens at this point. Um, right. I went to see it in a real IMAX screen. Uh, the one in Denver, if you know, it's the Colorado Center, Stadium 9. Um, they have a real IMAX there. And as much as I love the walk, I would urge you to wait until it comes to regular theaters because if it were just IMAX, it would be awesome. IMAX 3D is really problematic because the glasses they give you are too fucking small. Hmm. I, unless you sit in like the very back row, I can't imagine they would cover the screen. And that's if you don't have glasses. If you do have glasses, they're super tight and everything, and they don't really fit over my glasses right. So the movie was pretty blurry for me, and it does this thing where, because the IMAX screen is so big and it has so much luminosity coming off of it, light refracts off your glasses onto the other lens and makes this thing where, like, if it's a scene that's dark or just has a complex color palette at all, you can barely see it because light is kind of going everywhere. And the 3D effect is okay... But I couldn't judge it very well because there was so much blur and things going on. So definitely, if you have glasses, don't see it that way. If you don't have glasses, like my mom I was with, she doesn't have glasses, but she said she could not move her head at all or it would go out of whack. Hmm. So, yeah, I think in theory it's good. Like, if you have just a regular real D 3D theater, all for it. I think the 3D is really good and it would probably look great in that context where the glasses are competently made. But I would avoid the IMAX 3D version. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah, I realize I don't think I've actually seen an IMAX 3D because I, I yeah. think I think the only 3D I've seen is like real D because I get like the yeah. same glasses every time I go. Well, well, like I know you've told me like there's that fake IMAX at the Colorado Mills. And yeah, I know you've seen like the Avengers there. Yeah, but that's, that's like what I was playing. Yeah, yeah, that's but just they the screen. Yeah, and they still use I think real D glasses yeah, yeah. and stuff. Yeah, so. If you have one like that, if it's a fake IMAX, you can probably go there and be fine. Although it's more expensive, you might just want to wait until next week when it's at a normal theater. But, yeah. I'm not going to get into another rant about theaters, but there's a lot of problems right now. Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah. And, and they, it's actually kind of funny because they used to... IMAX 3D used to be cool. Like, when I saw Avatar, I saw it on IMAX 3D way back in the day. And they used to have two different glasses sizes. One for, like, a person who didn't have glasses, and then one for people who did, and they were much bigger... And they would cover your lenses and, and cover the screen. And that was perfect. But now they just have a one-size-fits-all that's smaller than the old small glasses. I, don't, I do not get it. I don't know how someone thought this was okay. Because it takes less stuff to make yes. those smaller glasses, so your margins are better. Yeah. Really, really heartless. I, I thought at some point a, pro, you know, a, a, a thought of business was to satisfy your customers so they'd want to come again. But, you know. No, that's not how it works, Jonathan. It is to leave your customers irate, but not so irate that they're not going to come back. It's like they've, they've created a dependency for you that like you have to use this service because there's not really any other competing service that's viable in your local area. 
These are the modes and means of late capitalism, Jonathan. I have been reading a lot of Marxist stuff in my <laughs> class. I can't, I can't not see the world this way anymore. It's also known as the Comcast effect. Yes, yeah, that's that's a better name than late capitalism. We should just call it Comcast. If that's all. Or depending on where you are in the country, the Time Warner effect. Either yeah. one. They're both really yeah. shitty, and and they don't overlap. So you can they yeah. they have their own monopolies, which should totally be illegal, but somehow isn't. Yeah. Alright, so that's the movies I've seen. Have you seen any movies? No. Okay. Yeah. I didn't think so. I don't have time for... I've been doing... I've been dancing, Jonathan. All I've night! I've been dancing. I, you can't go to a theater, like a movie theater, and just start dancing in the seat. That's crazy. i got to be home, and I'm focused, I'm intent, and I'm fucking dancing all night. I don't got time for movies anymore. The Alamo Draft House does do every month a dance party. I don't know how it works because their seats are like hard installed in there, but they do do a dance party every month. Which actually, this is something I should mention about dancing all night that I think is really cool. Is that like, like they take the dancing, or at least I get the impression that they take the dancing really seriously in dancing all night. Because when you get to the credits, like you realize all of these characters, all the dances are motion captured. Oh my! God. And like they're all motion captured for different people for the different characters because everyone has different, completely different dancing styles. And if you complete a song in free dance mode, you can have a choreography mode that basically puts the character on a grid and you can watch the dance without all the camera cuts and stuff so you can figure out what the dance is and so you could actually do all of these dances in real life. So Next week on the Weekly Stuff Podcast. Yeah. We're video going, edition. We're going to the Alamo Draft House. It's like I'm going to learn like all the Yunarikami dances and then you're going to learn all the parts where Yosuke comes in and it's kind of like just there to make my dancing look better. And we're going to we're going to dance all night. We're going to disco fever. All right, this sounds good. All right, Sean. Well, let's put dancing aside for just a minute and let's talk. Let's talk. It's, it's night right now, Jonathan. You don't realize, but I'm doing a micro dance right now because I have to dance all night. It's I'm dancing. You just can't perceive it because the movements are so small; they're not noticeable by a normal human. Other people who've been playing dancing all night would be able to see, but. You can. All right. Well, let's talk about Doctor Who. All right, let's. Yeah. So, Series 9, Episode 3, Before the Flood, written by Toby Whithouse. He's previously written things like... You got the title wrong, by the way. You got it for the, you did the oh, second shit. episode. Under the Lake. There you go. I even thought about it, but yeah. yeah. Under the Lake, uh, written by Toby Whithouse. Re- previously wrote bad episodes like A Town Called Mercy, and good episodes like The God Complex. Yeah. So, Sean, this first part of another two-part story, Ghosts Underwater... Was this good Toby Whithouse or bad Toby Whithouse? Good Toby Whithouse. Like, yes. And depending on how the second part goes out, I think like maybe best Toby Whithouse. Yes. Like, I think this episode was really, really strong. I really loved it. It was like... it's the For me, it's the perfect Doctor Who episode in the sense that it's just like... It reminded me of uh, Flatland... Or Flatline. I keep on calling it Flatline because that's okay. what it's based on. But that and uh, Mummy on the Orient Express from last season... In that it just feels like it's a Doctor Who story. And it's like, while I did really enjoy the season opener, like, and I do like the larger mythological elements of Doctor Who, because how could I not? Like, I, since I'm actually in a position to kind of understand it as much as those things can be understood, I have to kind of like it. But I'm here for Doctor Who for, like, the really good one-off stories that are just about, like, some weird monster and some weird pseudo-science fiction-y problem going on and the Doctor just, like, kind of stumbling into it and having to solve it and it being spectacular. Like, that's what I love Doctor Who for, and this is exactly that. Like, it is the... It's the same thing I love the X-Files for. Like, I just... 
am a sucker for really good Monster of the Week style episodes, and this is like the epitome of that for me. That it's just like really solid, really focused on this one concept and this one monster, and it just has really great pacing and executes on it really well. I agree with all of that. I thought this was an extraordinary amount of fun. I was just kind of grinning beginning to yeah. end. Especially once I realized kind of where they were going with this, that Mummy on the Orient Express and Flatline are actually good comparisons in a couple of ways, because this is also, while it has all of that that you're saying, it's also another really good Doctor character piece on some level, I think. Yeah, yeah. And then it just uses, it's not necessarily a character study kind of thing, but it uses the character of the Doctor and the Twelfth Doctor specifically in a way that I think is so specific to this incarnation and to Peter Capaldi's performance that that makes it all the more entertaining and as a Doctor Who fan, rewarding. Yeah. Uh, that it's a really good story told through this specific prism of this character we love and who is, after all these years, still evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was good for him. I thought it was a, a good kind of... Um, not huge showcase for Clara, but a better showcase for Clara than the last couple weeks. Yeah, she it felt like she gets to be the companion character yes. here, where like she felt like she was even more in the background for the first two episodes. Right, and just getting to see where their relationship is at this point. Yeah. There's one dynamite scene with them in the TARDIS that I thought was great. Yeah, and uh, slightly new TARDIS design. Yeah, I like it slightly. Yeah, yeah, he got more round things, which is what he wanted. Yeah. so there you go. Uh, but no. So that was good, and I just, yeah, I think also, historically, and obviously Stephen Moffat's tenure, he approaches two-part stories very differently than Russell T. Davies did. Mm-hmm. But, if you just think of, like, the history of two-part Doctor Who stories, they're generally, the first hour is just kind of set up, and it's kind of dull, yeah. even when it's good, and then things go crazy in the second half. And this wasn't that at all. Yeah. I thought this was an hour of a really good story, with a setup for a part two that could easily be even better. Yeah. In fact, like, I think it's to the credit for this episode that it's so good that, like, I could see if, like, you changed, like, the last five to ten minutes of this episode, you could make this episode a single story. Yes. Like, if you could just wrap it up earlier. I mean, there's obviously, there's some stuff that would be harder to sort of, like, pay off on, but you could totally make this a single contained episode, and it would still be really good. Yeah. But, yeah, it definitely, it works well at setting up what is to come. Like, it's got a... I'd love the cliffhanger. Like, the cliffhanger of this episode is, like, classic Doctor Who style. Like, you know that, no, like, the Doctor's not dead. He's the main character of the show. But if you're going to imply that through the cliffhanger, like, I'm excited. Absolutely. And and there's a couple of great setups. Like, I just think the whole idea of... There's all these kind of mysteries in there. They finally find their way to that kind of cathedral that the coordinates are pointing to. Yeah. There's something in this casket... And the Doctor, and then, you know, kind of hell breaks loose and the Doctor realizes he has to go back in time to an earlier point at this base. That alone, I think, is this brilliant kind of mild inversion of the Doctor Who formula. Yeah. Where he goes to a place, he tries to solve the problem, and you always have the back of your head, the TARDIS might be able to solve this. Yeah. And this time it's like, well, let's try it. Let's see what the hell went on here. And I love that. I think it also, it's clearly going to make the two halves of this a little more distinct. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, this just does feel like 45 minutes of a 90-minute story where nothing's being wasted. And I love that. It doesn't feel like this was a slightly longer episode that we stretched out to two episodes or anything like that. Um, This is like, this is Doctor Who two-part storytelling at its best. And I love it. Yeah. So fucking good. So fucking good. Yeah. I mean, let's talk so... Let's start with the Doctor, because I just think he has such fun things going on here. Um, I mean, biggest laugh of the episode, 
and best moment is he's talking to them and Clara says, the note cards, Doctor, the notes. Yeah. And she, like a good teacher, she has them, gives it to him and he says, you know, I'm sorry for the loss of your friend slash family member slash pet. And yeah. as we've talked about before, the way Peter Capaldi delivers jokes, he doesn't know he's doing a joke. Yeah. And that makes it all the funnier. Yeah, yeah, like that part in particular, there's a lot of stuff here that like, it's a good continuation of how like the 12th Doctor has been developed over the last season. Yeah. Where it's like, it was some of the stuff that, like, while I really liked the first two, the season opener, like, you didn't get that much. Like, it felt like the Doctor in the season opener was more of, like, a just general version of the Doctor than, like, very, like, replaceable. Whereas this, like, yeah, there are definitely key moments where it's like, this has to be the 12th Doctor delivering this line. Like, I cannot imagine Matt Smith doing the note card joke. Like, it just doesn't fit with him. No. It's like, yeah, the note card joke. Especially because that's also, like, a great opportunity for just like pausing the episode and like going frame by frame and looking at all the note cards that they shuffle through that they don't use because there's some really funny shit written on those. That had to be a fun day in the writer's room. Yeah, just like coming up with all these like random generic Doctor Who scenarios where the Doctor needs to apologize or like say something to someone that he doesn't actually really care that much but he has to pretend that he cares. Yes, and I, I think it just speaks also to where we are with the Doctor and Clara where he relies on her in that way and she's happy to do it yeah. and I think this episode in a very subtle way cued in on that really well where mm -hmm. the Doctor it's almost like Clara is his crutch because he's still so awkward around everyone else but he trusts her as much as he ever could you yeah. know and she's kind of the same way with him where she's very good at talking to people but at the same time she's used him as at this point in her life kind of a crutch just to be happy and to feel things and I think that scene in the TARDIS between the two of them where he just tries to stop her and in his own awkward way I thought Peter Capaldi played this yeah. so well of just trying to in his own way he's trying to say he cares about her and wants to make sure she doesn't feel burdened by any of this and you realize she doesn't and I think that dynamic it's not spoken again through the episode but I really think you feel it yeah definitely and it, it's just something where like it does it's like it's the perfect amount you need of like it doesn't detract from the episode that it's like that you have like these the two main characters sort of like stop and have like a moment on their own but it feels like it is building up sort of like a larger arc that can then like develop throughout the season without like distracting from the main episode in the way that like some of the stuff from like season six in particular could do where it's just like oh you're just throwing like a bone for like a like character thing that's obviously going to pay off like later in the season yeah. this felt like a natural development that will like keep on building Absolutely, I like it. And, you know, after the first two episodes where we weren't sure... Because Clara went through some shit last season. Yes. Like, yes. What's, what's up with her? I think you get a sense of it here with, again, as you say, without it dominating the episode. Mm -hmm. And I like that. Clearly, like, some time has passed since last season, and that's fine. And I'm, I'm glad with that. Um, but, yeah. And, and I also... It's cool. Like, I think it's good that Jenna Coleman has stuck around as long as she has, if for no other reason than this and, like, last week's story would not be stories you could tell with a new companion. Yes, yeah. You have to have someone who's settled into the role and has a comfortable, you know, repartee with the Doctor, and she totally does here. Yeah, which is interesting because it is like, I mean, obviously the Stephen Moffat years have been different, but for, like, the majority of New Who, you haven't had the situation of having, like, incumbent companions that stick around for a long time. That it does feel like with Clara, like, it's a smart thing, I think, that they're trying this, like, two-parter thing this season with Clara because you have that opportunity where... She just fits into the role so naturally that you can just tell these stories yes. and be fine with it and not have to dedicate a lot of time to developing the companion stories in the way that, like, the last season did to very great effect with, like, her story and Danny's was the main thing that drove the season. Whereas, like, now it's nice to sort of, like, get away from that and just tell core Doctor Who stories of just, like, hey, let's go to an undersea base 
and fuck around with cool electromagnetic ghosts. Yes. Because so, that's what I want to do. Let's talk about the ghosts. Yes. Um, I mean, a lot of things we can praise here. I actually thought the production design in this episode yeah. was phenomenal. Very well directed. And then those ghosts are a good effect and a good design. Yeah, yeah they're very creepy looking. Like, well, not being like too creepy looking to like be outside the scopes of like what Doctor Who should do. And yeah, the being an effect that's like... It's not the most sophisticated looking effect, but it completely sells what they're trying yes. to sell. Like, it doesn't look cheap at all. And I thought they made great use of just, like, the corridors they built and mm-hmm. just that general sense of space within that base. Like, because it's a pretty common thing that the Doctor goes to a random space base. Yeah, and just, you know, if you want to get some good Doctor running down corridors, you get some good Doctor running down corridors in this episode. Yes, and it it's felt really like... the core of Doctor Who when you get down to it. Is, it it's, that's just kind of what the show is. Absolutely, and I think... Just uh, the way they use the geography of this base is really sophisticated and well done. And then I think the characters that are there, you know, they're not the deepest characters ever, but they felt a lot more distinctive than characters in two-parters often do. Yeah. And I can't... I really loved, like, the the, the captain character who is deaf and we have to translate with uh, sign language. Yeah. I love that. I It's like that's such an underrepresented thing in media, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be. Like, I love here, that's not a huge part of the narrative. Like, it does come up that she can read lips. Yeah. But that's almost incidental. Like, mm-hmm. they could get around that some other way. Yeah, there's not some, like, crazy thing where it's like, since she's deaf, like, she's the only one who can survive because they operate on, like, sound waves or something. It feels like that's how it always kinds of pans out. If you have any person who has a specific handicap in any sort of uh, narrative medium, yeah, it's always yeah. like has to serve a very direct kind of blatant narrative like plot purpose whereas here it does feel very incidental that it's like it's the character just happens to be deaf and like that's it yeah and she's an interesting character i think beyond just being deaf just that she's this you know commander person who very clearly has a you know she kind of understands where the doctor's coming from yeah. while also feeling like she has a higher responsibility and then again just that adds something to it because deaf characters are very underrepresented in media and I like it. I think sign language is just one of those languages I like, I guess in this case, seeing, not hearing. Yeah. Because it's a cool language. Mm-hmm. And so just the way they did that was nice and unexpected and added some color to the episode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it definitely, like, it reminds me of the God Complex in that, like, the God Complex is also a good episode that just, like, you know, you have a lot of characters that are just introduced in this one episode and are only going to live in this episode. Obviously, this, there's also two of the second part. But, you know, they're effectively disposable characters in Doctor Who, which you get all the time you get in every episode you have like that set of characters and this definitely feels like with the god complex is a good set that feel like they have distinctive identities that like when o'donnell says something like three scenes after she's introduced i still know who this character is and can identify things about this character it's not just like random woman that's like replaceable character archetype that is in every single episode of doctor who i don't need to know your name i don't need to know your personality like you are just this character like, they have more color and more things to identify them and, like, like connect to them with. Absolutely. And O'Donnell, I actually thought, was, got some really good jokes. Just yeah. in terms of her kind of... They didn't overplay it, but her fandom for the Doctor. Yeah. And the Doctor being prickly in the way he is. Like, in particular, I thought there's that really good moment where he praises her for, like, getting the day mode thing to start working again. Yeah. Which is, like, sort of, like, you know, being kind of bashful about it. And he's just like, now I need you to turn it back to night mode. It's like, what? Wait, what? So the Doctor gets to... I mean, I love just the way the story progresses. Because you have ghosts, and you're wondering, alright, what's the catch? And then the Doctor's just like, well, as far as I can tell, they're just ghosts. Yeah. And I think that was kind of funny. Yeah, like, there is definitely a good... I mean, it's something with, like, the way they use the Doctor in this episode feels very much like the Doctor. That I love that he's... 
you know, he's just like really fascinated by everything that is happening and he just wants to figure it out and that's his main objective. That's like, which is, you know, it's a very Doctor thing, but the extent to which the 12th Doctor does it feels unique to him and that's like, it's like the humanist elements of it kind of feel like they are so far in the background for him that it's like, he doesn't care that much that these people are in danger. Like, he'll help them, of course, but like, that's not his prime. His primary concern is not getting all these people to safety. His primary concern is to find out what these ghosts are. Like, are they ghosts? Like, how are these people manifesting after death? Like, what is the mechanics of what's going on here? And that's his prime concern, and that's what he's really going after. Absolutely, and I think in that way, this episode is actually a really good kind of companion piece to Mummy on the Orient Express. Yeah. Where the whole kind of idea there was... This was such an intense situation and the Doctor was having such difficulty kind of relating on a human level that he became very dark in that episode. Yeah. And here it's a similar thing where he needs to figure this out. He needs to have all these people on the ship be guinea pigs with him and all this. But I like that he stops and is always like, you don't have to do this. Yeah. Like, clearly he has evolved while still having the things that make him him. Yeah. And I like that. So it's just, it's a nice kind of... Evolution, but then you see he really comes to like these people because they're willing to do the experiments with him. Yeah, yeah, because there is that fantastic moment at the end of the episode where he gives that speech to sort of like tell them that it's like you can go home or you can come with me and we can find out what's going on here. Yeah. You know, and like if you leave now, like you will always wonder, like what could I have learned? Like what could I have discovered? What could I have like found out about myself yes. if I had gone with him? Like that's a really great example of like what happens all the time where the doctor gives a speech to inspire people that's a constant thing i think this is a really great example of it where it feels very natural and germane to the episode instead of being obligatory which is what it is a lot of the time in these episodes where like the poorly written doctor speeches just feel like it's kind of happening because it's expected that the doctor would say something like that at this moment here it's feels like this is a natural development of like where all these characters have been and it's a really well written example of one of these speeches that it doesn't feel very tired the way that I felt about that for a while on Doctor Who when you have those moments. Absolutely. So we get we get a lot of twists and turns here. I love the whole sequence where they have to kind of, again, the kind of guinea pig thing. And he's participating in it equally, but they're yeah. all sort of going through the ship and trying to lure the ghosts around. And that whole sequence is just a lot of fun. Yeah, there's a, like, there's a really solid the sort of like science fiction mystery aspect of it. Although like... They, I feel like they maybe play their hand a little bit too hard with the Faraday cage thing early on, where that just tells you that the ghosts are electromagnetic. Yeah. Like, that's what they are. And so it's like, that's maybe a little too heavy-handed, because I figured it out right away. But, like, they're, like the, still the process of it I found, like, really interesting of, like, how well realized that concept is that these, that they're basically radio waves. I mean, not just weight radio waves, but that's more or less, like, what they're calling them. And that's what the ghosts are, and so that's why the ghosts are immaterial. It's like, that's why they're only able to interact with, like, metal objects. And then it all comes down to, then, them using that to realize the message written on the side of the ship. Like, that's what it's doing, is it's imprinting that electromagnetic message into these people. Yes, it's, it's like, really it, cool. Yeah, it's like, it's a really fully developed concept that does make it feel really satisfying that, like, as they're going along the steps and getting gathering all this evidence... And it doesn't feel like it's really in your face and the doctor's just saying to it to you constantly. It feels like you're just picking up these clues and trying to figure out what these are. And, like, the scientific concept at the heart of it, while, well, like, the it, the message being, like, imprinted into your body and allowing you to become a ghost, like, that's very fanciful. But, like, the core concept of them being beings made of effectively light, like, that's totally solid. And, like, them, like, all the things that they are then able to do because of that concept... Or is all completely scientifically plausible. So it like feels very satisfying in that way that you're not like 
It's not like Kill the Moon, where you get to the end of that episode and it's like, well, five million like very basic principles of science have been violated by everything in this episode. And just like rolling your eyes here, like they obviously they take some liberties that you need to to tell this kind of story. But the core of it does feel like it's centered in like some sort of scientific plausibility that I can get behind. That then makes the mystery a lot more interesting because it's not just centered on made up bullshit for the episode. It's centered on actual real world principles that you can know if you studied any of this stuff and then can draw your own conclusions based on what's going on in the episode. Absolutely. I was going to mention Kill the Moon too. Yeah. I mean, basically it's, you know, Under the Lake is an episode where clearly Toby Whithouse, he knew what the story was going to be before he sat down and wrote it. Yeah. He knew all the steps versus something like Kill the Moon where it really felt like that was just written on the fly in one draft with no editing or anything. Yeah. And we'll figure it out as we go along. Which, when you're doing hard science fiction kind of storytelling, is not good. Yeah. So, yeah, this is definitely the right kind of, of story where it's it, the writer understands it from the inside out. Yeah. And tells it well. And then you have the characters discovering it alongside us. And within all that, though, the episode is still very eerie. Mm-hmm. It's very exciting. There are moments that are genuinely scary in the way you want Doctor Who to be scary sometimes. And it's just a lot of fun. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's like, it's exciting throughout. It's yes. like well-paced, and the chases are fun, and like, the, the character moments are, are well done, and they're all put in the spots they need to be. Like, it's just very well told. Absolutely. And it flew by. I mean, yeah. 45 minutes, and I've actually thought about each of the episodes this season, they've just kind of flown by, but this one especially, I got to the end, and I'm like, I know it's going to be a two-parter, but still, 45 minutes in, you're like, man, I want more. This is... Yeah, this was like the episode where it's like, I got to the end of it, and I was like, ah. Oh. Fuck, I need to wait a week. Because it's like, you know, like I kind of had that with the season opener, but like the, the I guess the cliffhanger for the, the season opener didn't grab me that much because it felt like it was so sort of like blatant with like like Clara and uh, Missy dying, but obviously not dying and like that stuff. is like, and the Doctor going back in time and pointing the ray gun at like Kid Davros. Like obviously none of that stuff is going to like pay off in an obvious way. Like they're going to come back and he's not actually doing the thing that he seems like he's doing. There's like this feel like, the cliffhanger at the end of this episode just feels like it ties so perfectly into what's going to happen because it is, it's so perfectly timed that it's like the doctor decides like, okay, I'm going to go back to in time to the beginning of how this happened. It's like, but he gets separated from Clara and some of the other people. He goes back in time and you're still with Clara and it's like this body is floating in the water and he's just like, wait, what is that? Is that a new ghost? And you look out and it's Peter Capaldi. And like, and Peter Capaldi is the creepiest looking out of all the ghosts, which obviously <laughs> he would be, but like, I wasn't expecting that it's like, fuck he's scary looking it's like <laughs> that's so perfect because you know that he's not dead but you just are like how did he get in this situation like what is going to happen with this it's the perfect cliffhanger and it just promises a whole new story next week where we're going to see this this setting 300 years earlier and all these things and... yeah and then the prospect of like that connecting with like the parallel storyline thing seems like it could work really well with Clara in the present and the yeah. Doctor in the past. It's exactly what you want out of a good two-parter. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it, back in the history of Doctor Who serial kind of storytelling of not the next episode's going to be us moving through the cave all week. Yeah. Maybe the next is another cool part of the story where we learn something about these weird people on Androzani or something. Or Yeah, it's yeah. like the, the cliffhanger in the setup for the next episode feels like, yeah, it's not just like, well, we're just going to, we're just doing this to do this but we're just going to actually just continue the story you've been with all along, which is basically what the season opener was. It's like, no, this is like a really fascinating pivot point to telling a new kind of story in this premise of like, yeah. where we're shifting towards the new episode and this new sort of like plot point and stuff. Yes. That's like, that's what this cliffhanger definitely felt like. Well, Sean, we are 
three and zero on Doctor Who so far. Yeah, this, this has been a strong season. Strong season, and I just I'm so happy they made this decision to do this two parter thing because you know maybe I'll change my tune if we get a bad one or something. But so far, it seems like. It, it's made Stephen Moffat a better writer. It's made Toby Whithouse better than when he yeah. was last time. We're going to have new stories from people like Jamie Matheson, who did a great job last season. Yes. And we're going to have new actors and, and things. And it just feels like the storytelling potential is going to carry us along week to week even more excitingly than it did last year. And I was kind of wondering when the season started, how is this going to work with us talking about it on a weekly basis? But it's kind of fun. Yeah, doing yeah. Doing it this way. This, yeah, especially if you get episodes like this where it feels like there's stuff to talk about in this episode yes. and it's not just set up for the second part. Yeah, if we had to do, like, the Daleks take Manhattan, I yeah. mean, fuck, it'd be like, there's Andrew Garfield before he was Spider-Man. Oh, right, he that's, is in that. That's about it. His American accent isn't as good in this as it was in Spider-Man. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah. All right, so anything else about Under the Lake? It's a really great episode. Like, I was just so happy. Because, again, while I really like the season opener... Overall, like this is the kind of episode that I'm really in to Doctor Who for. So yeah. I'm, I, it's really fantastic to get it like early on. Like it just like really revitalized me when I saw that. It's like yes, this is why I'm watching Doctor Who. And yeah. usually you have to like you know because the season eight, while I really liked it for most of it, like you had to get fairly deep in before you got like Mummy on the Orient Express, which was like the equivalent episode of like yes, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah, and uh, you know I think. The, there's there wasn't anything in this episode quite as like high in quality terms or like shocking as like the Davros Doctor scenes from last week, but yeah. as an episode, definitely my favorite so far. Yeah, definitely. Like it's the most solid episode out of the three that have yeah. aired so far. Yeah, yeah. just it, everything I want in the Doctor Who episode. This this had so much of it, and yeah, yep. and every as I told you last time, Jonathan, every time Doctor Who does ghosts, it does them well. Like, it, it's just, it pays off every single time. They should just do it more. It really does. So, one last question. The yes. Doctor does use his sonic shades again. Yes. I thought it was okay this time, too, because they, did, yeah. they didn't focus on it, and Peter Capaldi looks good in them, so... Yeah, like, as long as they don't... As long as he's not wearing it the whole episode, I'm fine. Yeah. It's like, I saw there were some people in the, like, fan community that were having a big problem with it. I don't really care because it was like and it actually kind of highlights how much of a blatant plot device the sonic screwdriver is in such a way that it actually kind of is refreshing that like the doctor only uses it once in this episode and it feels like that's like the allotted number of uses like it's like fine like this is the 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 situation in which you use the sonic screwdriver this is the sunglasses in this case this is like just to sort of like give the little push that the plot needs for like this thing to happen and that's it it feels like the sonic screwdriver being so iconic obfuscates that or at yes. least it does for a while until you catch onto it and then it doesn't obfuscate anymore and just drives you crazy so it's like this hopefully like the other writers will catch on to like use it sparingly like be be judicious in how you use yes. this plot device because if you use it too much it loses its power and it becomes ridiculous and then you have the doctor like breaking and like repairing fences like he did in the doctor dances and you're like this doesn't no, I'm fine with it projecting like a hologram, although I don't know how it projected it through the Faraday cage when the Faraday cage was closed. That's something I need to find out, but... Yeah, I mean, it also, I think it just fits with the 12th Doctor. I, A, don't think he would use the sonic screwdriver as much as some of his predecessors. Yeah. And B, I totally believe he would get bored with it as a screwdriver and turn into sunglasses. Yeah. And, and it's doubly so that they're kind of shitty-looking sunglasses. Yes. They're, like, very plain. Like, you get these from, like, for $2 out of the bin outside of, like, a 7-Eleven or something sunglasses, right. you know? Well, it fits. I, I am loving his slightly rattier costume. Yeah, like the hoodie thing he's got going on. It, it's kind of awesome. Yeah. It's, it's, 
I like I, it made me wonder if like that's going to be like a permanent change because I th- I assumed that that was just going to be for the season opener because it kind of fit with what was going on in those episodes with him as a character and where he was. But I think I'm kind of fine if they just kind of stick with that, like yeah. more or less. Like obviously, like have a little, a little bit of variation that they like to do. But I'm, I'm okay with him being a little more like I'm gonna go hobo for a couple days here and just wear this hoodie. And yeah, there's there's a sense of like he's just so excited to go do the cool stuff that he didn't bother to put on the nice clothes. Like he just kind of rolled out of bed and like threw his like sweatshirt on, basically. Just yeah, like, I gotta go do some science. It's a bit of like Patrick Troughton's look kind of had an element of that too. Just like it's a yes. little bit ratty. He's not super well camped because he's just he wants to get down to the business, you know? Yep. All right. Well, we're very excited to come back next week to talk about uh, Before the Flood and we will talk about Persona 4 dancing all night a little more and maybe I'll see another movie. We shall find out. Yeah. So, it's been The Weekly Stuff. Follow us on Tumblr, theweeklystuff.tumblr.com. This is www.jonathanlack.com. I do, I forgot to say this, have a written review of The Walk there if you want to read more about it. Technically, it spoils the movie. It's a true story. Don't give me shit about that. He does not die on the wire. Okay? Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, if it's something that actually happened, I don't think spoilers are not... They can't be a thing. Like, that doesn't even make sense. The internet can turn anything into spoilers, but they shouldn't. Yes. Yeah. All right, so we will see you next week. And don't forget, keep on dancing all night.